0: My guest this week is often singled out for his unconventional background in the design world, but as CEO of this Swiss watch manufacturer, it makes perfect sense. After chatting with him, everything he said caused me to double take. I mean, the guy talked about how much he loved and was inspired by the movie Heat, a gentleman that is ushering in a new mindset into a historic brand, from sustainability to encouraging his team to take time off for mental health. And he's so involved with this company, he even helped design the factory. I mean he made the prototype of the new building himself. with Legos of course my name is Jeremy Kirkland and this is BlaMO, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Chris Granger, CEO of the Swiss watch manufacturer IWC. Chris and I discuss his illustrious background and how we went from designing interiors to helming one of the most prestigious watch companies on earth.
1: Badly required after my 5.30 Central Park run this morning. <laughs> you went
0: running this morning?
1: Yes, I always go running everywhere I travel. It's, it's a big part of uh, sort of the routine of being away and having time for this. And uh, Central Park is such a unique beast, isn't it? There's is no other place on earth where you have this sort of 365 days a year constant running race going on. Yeah. And it has a very unique dynamic in the way that it works as a race. Uh-huh. It's the same every single time. And I've been doing this for 12, 13 years now, and I'm always struck by the fact that it never changes. So there's certain uh, areas of Central Park where people are really eager to attack all the time, and you're literally like racing all the time, and then other other parts where it's a bit slower, and that's, that seems to never change, and it's, it's strange.
0: What's your favorite place to run?
1: My favorite place to run in terms of um, sort of... Adventure running, I would say Hong Kong because you can run from the city centre up onto the peak, which is one of the Oof. steepest tarmacked roads I've ever come across, the Old Peak Road. Yeah, um, and I used to be the uh, on, on Strava the number three or number four for a number of years up that stretch. I mean, nowadays it's, it's, I'm not quite that fit anymore, but it's amazing because you can go from the centre of the city within two minutes you're out basically into the jungle and then it's it's literally the steepest road you've ever seen oh my all gosh. the way up. And then it goes into stairs at the top and then onto that viewing platform where you then have this amazing view over the skyline of Hong Kong and Kowloon Harbor. And it's just, it's in terms of being able to run from a city into nature like that, it's it's quite
0: unique. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I try to run a lot, but I'm I'm a recreational runner more yeah. than, like I don't Well, then you have to anything. run
1: in Miami because they're, <laughs> The pace is different. So if you run South Beach, you feel very good about yourself afterwards. Not, in terms, of, not in terms of your looks, but in terms of your running performance, definitely. No, I, I agree.
0: Uh, well, Chris, thank you. Thank you again for for coming on, for for taking so much your time to to do this. It means a lot. Thank um, you, it's a pleasure. There's a, a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk a ton about IWC, but uh, a lot that I want to learn more about is just you as a person. You. you um, i'm I'm really inspired by by your outlooks and the the charges that you're leading within i w c and your background and it, it's just really fascinating to me so i i'd love to just jump in really quick so you are originally from germany germany yes okay but but and germanish
1: <laughs> i call myself germanish that's born german married english that's uh
0: and then but you went to school and in New York, or, or excuse me, not in New York. Part of me uh, in in the UK,
1: right? Well, school I did in Germany, then obviously the army time as well, and then I went to university in the UK. Came over to LA briefly for uh, my my gap year, first part, and then back to London, and from 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 England, then to Switzerland, where I then eventually stayed after doing another five years in the UK.
0: Yeah, yeah. and w- you were studying at the time. You were you come from like a, a strong design background, yeah. architecture, and. Well, I know that a lot of people ask you about this, but it's still so unique and fascinating to me to just be around an understanding of good design. Like, how did, how did that come about?
1: Well, I think my interest in, in design started really, really early. Um, and actually, the first things that I designed were mainly sportswear. So I started probably in 87, 88 when, I really, when snowboarding popped up in Europe. I started designing uh, snowboard outfits, but all in luminous yellow and pink, you know, back in the, you know, end of the 80s. Like uh, the
0: Burton. uh, Yeah. yeah.
1: And we had a company in Europe called El Ho Freestyle. And then Burton came up, and Burton was indeed the first sort of major brand uh, to be dominant in in, in Europe in snowboarding. And then I designed snowboards. Uh, It's the same time when mountain biking. Uh, really got big, so I started to draw mountain bikes. I was into sailing, doing all sorts of sailing clothing and accessories and all the rest of it. And it's only from there I think the sort of architectural side started when I became really interested in film sets and in scenographic uh, scene setting, I'd say, of big movies. And that was probably mid late 90s i would say when that really started it's probably when i started to be mobile enough turning 17 18 to, right. to make my way to the local multiplex cinema which was like 20 miles away
0: from where i lived
1: what and, were um, the
0: movies that were turning you on to this
1: i, I think the, the the ones that i remember really strongly was um al pacino and robert de niro and heat that must have been around 1994-5 <laughs> yeah. something like that
0: Val Kilmer was in that too Val Kilmer was
1: in that yeah. oh man what in a phenomenal day. film yes it's a three hour film right? it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a long long film but it had fantastic moody scenes in it that really you know, the way that's filmed the way it's captured even like totally mundane stuff like a you know like an LA metro station the way it's filmed and captured is, is extremely atmospheric and I think yeah. that that inspired me and then the big one and I don't know why that is but the one that always got me thinking creatively was The Rock with uh, with uh, uh, Sean Connery, uh, which was 1996 oh. or 7. Yeah, Sean which Connery. Was that Alcatraz, Ed Harris, Alcatraz, Terrorist Takeover. The nerve
0: gas and the yeah, little yeah, bubbles yeah, of. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: The people bubbling up. Yeah. <laughs> but again, that <laughs> one had really, really strong film sets in it that became sort of iconic in the way it was captured. And that got me thinking about creating sets. And I think after that, I would say the next. Three, four years, I did a lot of matte painting, drawing of film moods, film sets, film posters, stuff like that. And I think that's what got me into what, in the end, became interior architecture and architecture. That's fascinating. What, so I, mean, I was an only child, I had a lot of time, as you can tell. Uh,
0: what, I mean, what sort of environment were you, were you placing around your family where that stuff's appreciated? I think, I, I you know, I so much that I have a little daughter mm. and so much of what I've been learning about her outlook and experience on things is basically she's, you know, it's just what she's used to. I I used to really beat myself up because we don't have a big backyard for her to play in, but I'm like, well, I, you know, she doesn't know she doesn't have it. She's not really used to that. So like, were, were there, were your family or your mother and father showing you any sort of things that influenced this or was it more on your own? I think the only thing that uh, probably influenced
1: me a little bit is my mum and dad had a massive house-building project which took up about 15, 16 years of, of my sort of adolescence period. Oh. So, And we started that in Lego, so we bought this... this <laughs> This plot with a really old house on in, in a remote village because it was affordable. And then this whole sort of, oh my God, what are we going to do with it? And it was a really sort of space station type structure, which was made from sort of hexagonal uh, aluminium uh, prefab housing, which we sold off as a, as a workers' camp to, to Africa actually afterwards. And it was a quite unique architectural structure, really weird space. But everything, there was no right angles in the place. So to oh. turn that into a family home was pretty challenging. And we started off building this in Lego. In twenty iterations, and then sort of did a DIY job on it for most of it, which took up sort of all of my my, my childhood more or less. So <laughs> I think that probably <laughs> had a strong influence on my affinity uh, towards spatial design. And and other than that, I always think what I often uh, discuss with my kids as well: don't underestimate the the power of being bored. You know, because when you have twenty four seven entertainment, yeah. high frequency stimulation, it's very hard to come up with creative stuff. And, and sometimes I see that in our own children. When we go away on holiday, sometimes we stay on, on Lake Como once a year with friends of ours and, and there's not much to do for the kids. You know, there's a garden and they come with their free four toys they bring along and there's not a lot of stimulation or uh, adult entertainment or anything. Yeah. So you see how their play develops over time because first they literally, you know, hang on your legs and go, oh, I'm, bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, what can I do? <laughs> uh, but two days in, they get carried away in, in Storyland and they come up with the most extraordinary stories and even if they're just playing with a a couple of little uh, toys and animals. They come up with these amazing dream worlds and they're playing all night. And that just, I think when I relate to my own childhood, I think if you have time to be bored, you have time to come up with stuff because you literally have to. And, and that's, it's not bad. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. We, we got our daughter, uh, like a crayon, like big pad and coloring books. And I showed her how she could trace her hand. Yeah. And it like blew her mind. Yeah, <laughs> baby steps. <huh? laughs> yeah. Uh, so you were an architect for just like a couple of years, right? Yeah. And then you landed at IWC doing, what was it? It was trade marketing? Well,
1: yeah, it started with a museum. So I had, uh, during the uh, gap year at university, I designed the first uh, men's uh, accessories jewelry store in, in London, in Sloan Street, uh, which was the, the, the Royal CuffLink a jeweler to 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 the crown and that was my first taste of designing retail for precious little objects and yeah. i think i realized that i really liked that because i did a couple of high street fashion stores as well that i worked on as an, as an assistant junior designer and i realized this whole dimension of showcase display technology complicated opening mechanisms hiding all the little nuts and bolts and making sure it's secure and all the rest of it like an art gallery for mechanical objects that was something that I I really liked and Mm -hmm. and I came back to that uh, starting in Zurich as an interior designer doing mostly hospitality and then about a year and a half in uh, Richemont called and actually said we're looking for an an agency to work on a museum concept for IWC and I literally jumped at that because I knew the watches uh, from my university days the brand spoke to me I thought I could identify with what IWC stood for Mm -hmm. and I threw myself at that I still had my university days uh, discount laptop uh, which I had to put in the basement of my apartment to get the cooling f- off the concrete floor to <laughs> the keypad off so they wouldn't actually overheat and I, I spent three days day and night developing a concept uh, for that and then we, we went to see IWC on, on the Monday after that um, and, and they liked the concept they thought oh, we think you got it we think you got the brand and I worked on that for just over a year as an external architect and yeah at the same time, I built the uh, first boutique there um, that was part of that museum when I realized that IWC really wanted to expand into retail globally, but... The boutique had, in... in- boutique in Schaffhausen. Okay. Uh, but they had nobody who had any idea about how to architecturally implement a brand concept. And I thought, well, you need my help. And uh, I wrote a letter to, to Alain Zimmermann at the time. And uh, yeah.
0: Wait, hold on. And things so developed you, from there. You wrote a letter saying yeah. that like, saying, I'm the guy uh, for the uh, job? Exactly.
1: I'm the guy for the job you don't, (laughs) you don't have yet, and you don't yet know that you need, but uh, yes, and that worked, so. That's,
0: that's incredible. Well, I think, you know, because a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a bit of an intimidation that, you know, like IWC is just an unbelievably fascinating, historic, prestigious company, and I mean, it just goes to show that, like, you had this confidence that you were able to, to do that, to reach out to them and say, like, hey, I'm, I, I can contribute and I, I want I want to be a part of this.
1: Yeah. And also I think that's quite unique about IWC is the fact that there isn't this big threshold anxiety. I think we're quite welcoming as a brand. And I definitely yeah. felt that back in 2005 when I walked into this company for the very first time, I always knew I liked the people, I liked the atmosphere. It felt warm and cozy in a way, you know, it felt welcoming yeah, and not intimidating. And it allows you to not be shy about having ideas and having initiatives because you don't feel you're going to be shut down or there's going to be some big sort of, oh, are you worthy of, what you know, it's none of that. And I think that helped a lot and, and that's never changed. I think that that spirit is quite unique to the brand and, and still today.
0: Yeah. So you, you're you at IWC for close to what, like it's, seven or eight years no, before you yeah. you get asked?
1: Yes, it would have been just 10 years, yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. So in, in in that time, you got to kind of work and experience almost every aspect of that business.
1: Yeah, I would say within marketing, sales, and design, yes. Uh, yeah. Not so much, obviously, originally within operations. Sure. That only came once we started to work on the new factory when I had to really understand how to make a watch, which is quite a new dimension too,
0: Yeah. <laughs> what I
1: was doing before.
0: Right, because mm. then, then you helped launch, I, I, I always butcher the, the pronunciation that manufacturers are, how do I say yeah, This
1: is German engineering after Manufakturzentrum. It's a manufacturing center. Yeah. Um, so yes, that, that was a, a six-year project where we really set out to do a completely new greenfield development of manufacturing. And to, to just put that in a bit of context, we hadn't done that since 1874 because everything we've ever done have been extensions to existing buildings that have always been a huge compromise in terms of space and functionality Mm -hmm. because we are stuck between the River Rhine on one side and the old town of Schaffhausen which is very historic and listed and between that you can only go up and in terms of manufacturing a watch in an efficient way that's an absolute nightmare because you're trying to go from fourth floor west wing to basement east wing it's really not very practical and we said at some point we have various sites all over Schaffhausen let's consolidate that into two and build at the edge of Schaffhausen where we have space for expansion something completely from scratch and that's a really unique opportunity because A you can lay out manufacturing the way you actually want to do it Yeah. B you can build something which represents the brand in, in an appropriate way and C you can create the visitor experience from the start which I don't think has ever been done in the same way in the watch industry because usually it's an afterthought you build the building and then you go oh let's do a tour um, how do we do that And we really try to set this up with several work streams at the same time to say, on the one hand, how can we make sure we have very flexible, ergonomic, and efficient working space? And on the other hand, how can we explain to somebody very visually how a raw bar of metal is turned into a watch movement and is turned into a case? And that's quite unique. Yeah.
0: Do you you think some of that like Lego prototyping concept you had when you were a little kid... Helped influence this? Well,
1: actually, I also built the manufacturer in Lego. So yes. Did you really? <laughs> it's in my office, yes. I didn't do the whole thing because obviously around the back, it is sort of, once you have the principle, like, I didn't have enough bricks to be honest. But, <laughs> <laughs> but definitely to to get the, the entrance proportions and that pavilion uh, feeling that we wanted when you come in. Uh, yeah, that exists in Lego. And then we've, we've done a little kit as well for, for people for the opening, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: that's awesome. When, so, when did you find out that you were going to uh replace uh, mr kern for for the the ceo role
1: very suddenly on a thursday morning when there was a press release and i got the call at seven o'clock in the morning about one hour before the press release went out so it was quite sudden. <laughs> <Did> you- <laughs> which was a, it was a crazy week anyway because on the wednesday i finally bought a house in schaffhausen okay. on thursday um I, I got the job and on friday my wife told me she was pregnant with our third baby with annabelle so that was that was a week uh, not to be repeated wow <laughs>
0: What? yeah i mean so you had no idea that this was coming it was just no, not
1: concretely no of course at some point you get a feeling sure. about theoretical possibilities but the it was a complete and, and utter surprise that Thursday morning. And i was literally i think i faced all our staff in the theater in Schaffhausen at one o'clock in the afternoon the same day so you can imagine that that initial shock of oh my god you know you can't realize anything it's it's, it's a complete daze. yeah and then before you know it and I remember this was really a, a quite a unique moment because you're up on stage and all of a sudden you think, not only, oh, great, I got a promotion, but you think, wow, that's 750 people right there, their families, their holidays, their mortgages, their livelihoods. It's up to you now. And uh, in, in a sense, you know, yeah, no, like, I hear so you. So that sense of responsibility really kicked in at that moment where I thought, wow, that's, <laughs> okay, that's, it's, 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 it's one thing thinking about it theoretically and wouldn't it be, and then the next thing is to say, okay, that, that's it now. And, and, and yeah, but. Uh,
0: That's quite a whirlwind. (laughs) No, I mean, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, do you think how much uh, did it help or influence you being the fact that you had been with the company for so long Mm. and also had really had had developed a strong understanding of how IWC was run?
1: I think it's really important. I think it helped a lot. It helped a lot because you understand the culture and you understand the brand. And I always think it's something... That part in in luxury is really, really hard to teach. I think you can learn everything about operations of finance, how manufacturing works, you can learn all of that. But to have a feeling for what is on brand and not on brand is something that's very, very hard to transmit to somebody who has never been in contact with it and to somebody who may not necessarily feel it naturally. So I always think in our business there is a set of brands that you know, what I sort of naturally get, I would say, and it's mm-hmm. easier to think yourself into those brands. And then there's other brands which are just not you. And I think in a in a business that's all emotional and all about aesthetics, you're not endlessly flexible to deal with every single brand on earth because brands, you have to represent what you, what it is you're doing and, and that yeah. has to speak to your values. So I think there's always some limitation in terms of flexibility in, in working on different brands.
0: Right. It, yeah, it feels to me now especially more than ever because there's a rise of these new types of brands which are directly to the consumer. They there's no, you know, they don't have physical locations and they're all basically viewing their customer as a form of data. Data, yeah. Yeah, definitely. which I think it, there's maybe an advantage to it, but sometimes something that I love so much about IWC is that you know, especially like a watch, mm. like what it means to me may mean something totally different to the other person in yeah. the room, but we both love it. Yeah. There's an emotion that's behind yes. that, that I feel is, you know, in some way that the weight is on, is on your guys' shoulders to help continue to foster and, and nurture that emotion with the customers. But like, what does it look like in this new day and age where you have data, you have these different types of companies and different expectations from new customers?
1: Yeah, I think I think you described it really, really uh, well there because you have both elements. You have, on the one hand, the basic task is human creation in what we do. <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't come from data. It doesn't come from market research. It doesn't come from anything. At the end of the day, we... 100% depend on somebody having a genius idea at some point. And that's something that fits in no SAP flow, in no structure, in, <laughs> in no algorithm, in nothing, right? That, that is literally yeah. that, that eureka moment. And you always know when it happened because you, you have clarity after that. You may try different things, but the minute you have that right idea, you know it's there. So, and that's, that's, that's the sort of X factor that you, you, you can't really uh, plan. But then on the other hand, What technology is giving us is is a much better potential to understand our clients and understand what our clients are looking for and a much more direct 365 days, 24 hours communication between our clients and us as a brand. And that's fascinating. And that is when you think a few years ago, communication was all broadcasting Mm-hmm. You, know, you created a catalogue. You created a ridiculously long movie, which you put on YouTube or sent out on DVD. I remember <laughs> yeah. back in 2006, <laughs> seven. You know, and that was it. And then you know your campaign ran for a year, and you thought, yeah, media value seems okay. So you know, but that that you know, there was no feedback, no like button, no yeah. no comments, no nothing. Um, and and that's changed dramatically into something which is very instant, uh, very interactive, and where we're having much more of a dialogue. But having said that that does not replace creativity because you you know you can't crowdsource the oh, you can try but yeah. you know if you think about any iconic project product people don't know yet they're going to fall in love with that and you also sometimes see creations that people initially don't particularly take to that really become iconic over time and and that's nothing that any sort of data analytics is is going to give you an insight into so are still, luckily the yeah. machines have not fully taken over <laughs> still the remote (laughs) hope that some sort of human element may may stay.
0: Yeah. Nowadays, it feels like every time you travel, your phone runs out of juice. So you're stuck there with a dead phone while all your friends are making memes and you realize the worst has happened. You've become a meme yourself. It never happens to me because my carry-on luggage is from Away and it has a built-in USB battery charger. My phone dies and I go, all good buddy, and I plug it in and next thing you know, my memes are back. Away suitcases are made with a lightweight and durable shell that's made to last for a lifetime of travel. My own away luggage has been all over the world with me on tons of trips and still looks fantastic. I use the built in compression pad inside and I'm able to pack all my gear with ease. Best of all is I can cruise through the terminal on those 360 degree rotating wheels and zip to my gate. Now, Away suitcases are in tons of new colors, and they offer an amazing personalization program where you can monogram your luggage and have it painted by hand. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash blammo to save $20 off your first suitcase and check it out. If you don't like it, Away offers a 100-day trial, and if it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized items for a full refund, no questions asked. So visit awaytravel.com forward slash blammo to save $20 off your first suitcase. Well you're a, a very in- inspiring leader to me too because you there's a sense of transparency that you display. I mean, look, I mean, you're on Instagram and people will comment to you and I've seen you respond to people's comments. Yeah. Like uh, how much do you take that into, you know, your consideration? I know you said you don't crowdsource but I mean, have you, do you feel that this new age of like Instagram and social media, you've, you've learned more about your customers or, or potential ones?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I think, as I said, you know, you, you have that direct exchange with the people who respond to your products, use your products, love your products, or may have difficulty with your product or not like a product. And right. I think that, um, you know, there's, there's always, there is a tendency, um, on social media, I would say that. A particular loud opinion is probably overproportionally amplified. Yes, and that we have to be astute. Bit, <laughs> <laughs> we have to be a little bit cautious of because it can tweak an an actual uh, an actual sentiment to something quite particular that may not be representative. So th- th- you have to be a little bit careful about evaluating it as well. But at the same time, I think it is so much better if we have a dialogue with the people we're making this all for all the time because at the end of the day unless people love what we do, uh, that sustains our, our entire existence. You know, we, we don't make essential products. And that means that the happiness and joy factor we provide is the be all and end all of what we do.
0: Yeah. I would say the, that's fine that you don't make essential products, but I would say for me, you make some of the most emotional products yes, exactly. I've that's, ever that's interacted with. Yes. It's, you know, I mm. the first like cool guy watch, like I'm an adult watch. I ever got uh i got off ebay it was a vintage iwc and i remember the the empowerment that i felt from wearing this watch was incredible Mm. i mean and it look i I, it wasn't it didn't cost me a ton but it was enough that it was like you know oof but uh, that watch i still have to this day and that watch to me it's my it's my new york watch yeah because this is like, okay, I made it. I'm, I'm, yeah. I can stay living in New York. I'm going to figure this out. And that, that is like a totem to me that nothing else I've ever owned or even can fathom has done.
1: Well, you totally uh, described it there. <laughs> I think my dream scenario is because I think often that, especially IWC is, is exactly that milestone product for people who are on their way. This is not a lifetime achievement award. It is something that confidently, but understatedly marks a milestone like that exactly like you describe i think that's that's beautifully put but what is so unique about these products is when you think that most of the things we interact today have a built-in obsolescence that constantly tell us we have to consume new versions yeah. faster and faster and faster and this for me at the same time i noticed that people are so focusing on sustainability on our impact of the environment but yet We're happy to dispose of most of what we use with all our uh, rare metals and rare earths and platinum conductors and the chips and all the rest of it. But we think it's totally okay to get rid of all of this every two years. And... Also, in terms of the emotional expression that you have in technological products, there's not much it says about you. Yeah, it's functional, but it doesn't say anything about the values you believe in and the dreams you have of wanting to be this jet fighter pilot or whatever it may be. Yeah, And I think the mechanical watches, especially in the men's segment, have a unique power to pack so much emotional content and so much of your own personal story into so small a product that you actually wear on your skin all of the time. And as you dent and scratch it and live with it and experience things with it, it becomes part of your story and in a sense becomes part of your legacy that you then one day hopefully are happy to pass on to the next generation to give to your son and daughter. Yeah. And I think that is what makes them so unique and they're built for eternity. At the end of the day, what can be more sustainable than a product that is mechanical, made to last and be repaired forever? And that is made in sourced in a responsible way in a high price country in the center of Europe. Yeah. where people, for their creativity and their craftsmanship, earn decent wages and live good lives. And we don't have to put on the products designed in Switzerland and uh, assembled, God knows where. you know it is all done at the very point where our founder set it up in 1868. And I think today where we're talking about the meaning of what we do, the way we consume and, and the way we have an impact on the planet, I think that that is an intrinsically sustainable product and that's something you can generally feel good about.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, mm. and it's funny cause you know, we were chatting a, a little bit earlier about some of these new companies and the, you know, these direct to consumer types, you know, clothing brands, you name it. And so much of what they want to lead with is this sort of unfortunate, like a false sense of authenticity, mm. but also in a, a form of like sustainability or like the people that are making these are taken care of. And yeah. Sure maybe they're taken care of to what is okay in that country, but it wouldn't be what is okay in a in a global sense. and I yes. think with IWC and what you guys do, I mean, yeah, I mean that says so much about just the watch that you know you have and and who like no i I own an IWC which means X, y, Z like it means all of these other things and then it means something more impersonal to me yeah and i I don't really know any other company outside of maybe a couple other that are in that same type of industry that can say that. But yeah. something that you lead with a lot, and it's funny because you had talked about sustainability, is the, the life of your employees. I mean, I mean, you had talked to other than New York Times, other people about encouraging a, yeah. a bit of a balance in that life, yeah. which I would say is, is not a common thing in in this, in this like grind type industry that mm. you have. Wh- where did that come from?
1: Well, it comes from my personal experience, I think, more than anything. And it comes from the fact that I fundamentally believe that if if you want your colleagues to be effective and creative and original, there is no chance on earth you can be running at 150% all of the time yeah. and be able to work effectively. And I've noticed that uh, in my own career as well, that we've had times where we've worked incredibly hard. And when you look back, sometimes you feel there were times that weren't necessarily very productive. Especially as a designer, you know that very well because you spent sometimes hundreds of iterations in certain project that never came out particularly well in the end. Yeah. And something else you do on a napkin, you have that one <laughs> moment where you go bang! And half an hour, you've you know, and some of the most complex stuff we've done Taking me the least time to design because it's just the right idea. Right. But the right idea you only have if you're mentally healthy, fit, and and rested. Otherwise, at two o'clock in the morning, no chance. And you have to be away. You know, have to be able sometimes when you work creatively to step away, go for a run, clear your head, and come back to it. And you know, I don't I don't pay our colleagues for the amount of time they spend at work. We you know we are here for the, exactly. the value we bring. And for, for me, the principle is is very clearly that people have a very good understanding of when it matters and Mm -hmm. everybody needs to be there 110% in those moments when it matters. And and there's no excuses and illnesses and colds and flus and, you know, that, that we have to count on, but I can't, and I don't want to expect our colleagues to be working at that sort of rate uh, 365 days a year. I don't do it and I don't expect them to do it either.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that's huge and really refreshing. And I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but like as a consumer and, and, and that's an aspirational consumer and a an existing consumer. Like that makes me love and respect IWC far more than others because mm. I, you know, in, in this day and age where things are kind of nuts out there, you, you want something that you can believe in and something you feel proud to be associated with.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I, I often say to my colleagues, look, if we're not having fun with it, how do we <laughs> expect our clients to have fun with it? You know, it's, it, it's kind of starts from us, you know, otherwise, you know, yeah. I mean, these values if we if we don't transport them if we don't if we don't actually stand for what we say about our products I think it's 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 not authentic.
0: One of the other things that like means a lot to me is obviously your your sort of like management style and the things that you're doing is it's it's very kind of like Silicon Valley. Was there and I and I mean that as a compliment. Silicon Valley is sometimes to some people means other things, but um is there You know, has there anyone who's really like mentored you throughout this or been someone that you've looked or admired that you've learned from? I'd say there's a
1: a number of people um, where I've picked up certain bits, but on the whole, I would say when I look at management style, it's probably what's very organically been built over the years of working with this team. You know, I wasn't new to the team. I, I knew a lot of the people very well. And it just set us up a different way. It's not that I walked in there on a Monday morning and said, "Guys, okay, after twenty-five <laughs> yeah. years at Airbus, here I am." Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, people knew what to expect of me. And obviously, you have that that transition period from being just friend and colleague to also being boss, which is it comes with its own challenges. But, but I think the style that that developed there was was quite organic because I'd always basically worked with people that way. And in the end, I think the culture is. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it like that, but it's very much sort of the best idea wins, if that makes sense. You sure. Know, it's not about...
0: Not not ego type. It, it,
1: yeah, and it's not... Yeah, th- that's one of the good things about IWC. There's a, a little amount of, of ego, I would say. Yeah. And it's generally the fact that we come to the table with all the ideas, and if somebody has a genuinely good idea, that goes through. You know, yeah. We've just seen it now with, with a colleague of mine who presented a great idea yesterday that that's gone all the way, and... You know, it's he's he's still quite junior in the company, but best idea wins.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a sense of empowerment too and, and loyalty that gets developed over, you know, people in which they feel that they have a seat at the table.
1: Yeah, and I think also in terms of what, what hierarchy and, and committees and all the rest of it, there's always a risk that if you put too many filters between idea and execution, yeah. you, you lose a lot. And again, that's something you learn from creativity quite early on, you know, you have to... At some point, believe in the boldness of the idea and run with it. If it gets diluted and reworked and reworked, and it's like a, a movie script. If you re- rework a movie script with ten different writers over a period of two years, the likeliness that you're going to have a hit film is, this. I mean, not commercially maybe, but sure, yeah, yeah. Critically acclaimed, maybe not. So, yeah, yeah. It's that there there is an element to that. You have to identify these ideas and give them the space. Yeah,
0: something that you've I've you know watched you continue to build over the years at IWC is. Really, like elevating a lot of the watches uh, in terms of the movements, yeah. the, the quality because um, you know earlier you had said that you know that we're watches for people who are on their way, mm. but there are a lot of watches that for me that you make that are these are very much like Grail watches. these are like incredible pieces you know that rival many other yeah. you know manufacturers um, w- what was that process like because I know. In terms of like making a new movement, I don't think that the general public uh, has an understanding of the, just the cost of development to yeah. make a movement itself.
1: Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's very, very complex in our industry. And it, it takes five years for us to really develop movement functions from the ground up. It's a, it's a long lead time process that was quite, yeah. quite new to me as well, because compared to interior design there's, and, and architectural design, there's two key differences. A, time, because we do, you know, architects do a lot of things very last minute. That doesn't work in watches at all. (laughs) And secondly, the fact that um, in spatial design, uh, digital technology and visualization technology gives you a 95% uh, control over the outcome. And in watches and jewelry, that doesn't work at all. You know, you can render something, but the the feeling and the, the look of an object on your wrist is fundamentally different from the rendering, and the rendering can't capture that. So you do a lot of iteration of physical prototyping. And then especially when it comes to the movement development, something when you look at Tribute to Palweber that we launched Mm -hmm. uh, last year as part of the Jubilee collection, that was a five-year movement development cycle with an immense amount of challenges. You know, you have these disks that display the time digitally and they switch in a tenth of a second. And you can imagine when you go from 11.59 to 12 o'clock and they all have to shift at the same time, we needed to have two main power barrels to make sure that we have one just driving the movement and one just driving the disk switch, which is really takes a lot of energy. And then we found out in the development process that the tolerances for these disks to run properly is so tight that the printing of the number on the disk makes a difference to the balancing and whether they catch or don't catch. So you're working in micrometer tolerances here that are incredibly hard to fathom because no computer software is going to tell you that before. So you have always this duality between precision, which comes from CNC machining, digital calculations, all the rest of it. But then there is that again, that watchmaker element of finally regulating a movement, which no machine can do and no computer can really calculate properly before. And we always have these surprises on the way, where in the end, it comes back to human engineering and creativity to work out how to deal with it. In the end, we formulated a a new type of paint and printing to make sure that the numbers on the discs don't uh, unbalance the the discs, so it's 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 sometimes it's it's really a micro mechanical development process. Jeez,
0: yeah, because you're using technology like you know CNC machines, but also yeah. you're physically prototyping each of this yes. stuff. It's not like oh the the digital world said it would be correct. Let's make it.
1: No, not at all. Um, and, and I think this is always the point. We, we use machinery and technology where it makes sense and where it makes the product better and more reliable. And that's always been our founder's idea of combining American manufacturing technology back in 1868 with Swiss craftsmanship. And that's exactly how we work today. So we have certain things like the the Ruby setting in our movement-based base plates. Mm-hmm. We developed a ingenious machine that basically... Measures every single ruby point before it selects the ruby, presses in, and immediately measures the, the tolerances on the ruby to make sure that they're 100% correct. And a human being, we could never work to those tolerances, and that's precision. That makes the watch better in the end. But there's other things, like I said, the, the curling of the mainspring, the regulating of the mechanism, the setting to life of the watch movement. There is no technological solution that would be superior to an experienced watchmaker doing that. And that's where I think our balance is always. Uh, we're trying to do whatever it takes to make the product the best way possible.
0: Yeah. in the, the recent launch of the, the Spitfire series that was announced at SIHH. Yeah. All of the Spitfire stuff. And please correct me if I'm wrong. That's all done in house. Like the, all the new Spitfire movements that is like totally new. Yes. Um, w- was that entire process? Was that like? Did that take just as long? I mean, how does something like that go together when you when you look at like your guys's roadmap for how you're you're growing your?
1: Well, as I said, you know, globally speaking, um, it's it's a three to five year product horizon that we're working to, and then of course there's things on the way and then projects on the way that, that stimulate us to to drive a certain innovation one way or another. So, of course, you have options when you have a new material, which yeah. watch is it first gonna gonna show up in, and this is something that is more probably more on a twelve to to twenty four months time horizon when we decide that. Um, <laughs> the longest flight Spitfire project was. About a year old, um, I had known Matt and Steve since 2010, I think. And we mm-hmm. always said... The pilot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the two pilots. Yes, exactly. And we always said to each other, we've got to do something together one day. And then we were in Goodwood for an internal meeting and we walked into their hangar just by chance. They were both there just by chance. And Matt came over and he said to me, yeah, Chris, you remember we, we talked about showing the engineering side of Spitfire, the design side. So we thought, why don't we refurbish an old Spitfire turn it to chrome polished finish and fly it around the world. And we're like, immediately, this was, I showed him, we had done a movie in 2016, which was all CGI, which he hadn't seen, which showed a, a Spitfire in chrome finish. And we just looked at each other. And we thought, wow, this is just, this is meant to be. This was yeah. just that moment, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and the up okay, we've got to do this. And this was sort of a, just over a year out from the launch of the Spitfire. And then of course, uh, a lot happened to, to align the products and the story and making sure that we have things like the time zoner which tell that story yeah. of going around the world um, that's on a bit of a shorter, shorter uh, range I'd say but of course you can't design the time zoner movement in, in a year and a half
0: right right and then some of the other stuff that you've done like for me when I first learned about like ceramic casing yeah um, I to me, IWC was the the first person that like was a company that was really doing something like that at ceramics a very elevated level.
1: the eighties were the Da Vinci and colored ceramics. Yeah, came in in, in white and burgundy. And yeah, I mean it's green. It's and, incredible. Yeah, yeah, the archives are quite quite entertaining there.
0: How is how is that like done and, and, and thought of with within IWC? I mean, because it just. Ceramic in general, I mean, it doesn't really feel like it fits on a watch, but when you see it on your guy's watch, you're like, oh yeah, yeah this is perfect.
1: No, ceramic has very unique uh, properties that that lend, them, lend themselves to to working in the watch industry. But I always remember for us, the, the real milestone was titanium, because titanium, yeah. uh, again, was a material that was not used in the luxury industry. And it was our collaboration in the 80s with Porsche design that first uh, oh God, brought this right. one to the forefront where we thought, okay, we need an engineered material that has unique properties that is light, but it's incredibly hard to machine. And obviously when you, when you machine titanium uh, that can go on fire quite dramatically. <laughs> so also in terms of developing manufacturing processes that, that had a, a lot of different challenges, but it's very unique. And then you have the properties of ceramic and the property of the titanium. And then in the end, the next logical step was how to, combine the two and that led us to, to seritanium which we yeah. now have in the uh, the top gun double chronograph that we launched at SIHH where you have the scratch resistance of ceramics uh combined with the the hardness lightness and shatter resistance of titanium yeah and that really is then sort of the <laughs> the material that's that solves it all in, in in a certain way
0: wow that that's incredible Well, we're, we're starting to wrap up real quick but is there anything you want to like add or mention before we we close
1: no, I think I, I, I would just say um, we're about to embark on this big adventure with the with the longest flight, which is starting on the fifth of August. And I, I invite everybody to 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 follow this because it's the first time that a Spitfire has flown around the world. It's the first time that a, a, a an iconic plane like this, which was designed for short range flying, is going to attempt to go to all these countries it's never been to before. And basically, it's it's <laughs> the most uh, the, the least uh, uh, adapted plane for the task at hand, yeah. but it's going to make it all the more interesting. You can imagine a non-pressurized cabin, no oxygen, no heating, no aircon, across the Atlantic, Iceland, all the rest of it, then uh, down through the desert. <laughs> so that that's going to be really exciting. We're kicking off on the 5th of August, where you can follow that online every step of the way, and we'll have plenty of stopover events, including in Santa Monica and the US, that uh, uh, people can see this fascinating plane.
0: That's awesome. Well, Chris, thank you again so, so much for your time. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Blammo. As always, our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blammo Podcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Want to know more about what's going on in fashion, menswear, or just meet other folks? Join our Slack group. It's a private chat group online where tons of other Blamo listeners chat about everything. Just send us an email saying, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. And yes, we finally did it. We made some shirts. They're designed by Jeremy Dean of Dean's Nuts. They're dropping soon. So follow us online and be the first to know. See ya.